Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Serena, I'll be reading scripture today from Luke 19, verses 28 to 46. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who went ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Tony said to you this morning, we are uh, in a series called Being Human, um, if you're just joining us, we actually were just, this is this week two. Last week was supposed to be, but things happen. And um, Dave is actually in Bolton um, talking about uh, how the scriptures view women. Today I'm talking about how the scriptures view men, and we're talking about that as we grow together in our understanding of what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman. Uh, today we're talking about what does it mean to be a man. Now, over 80 of you filled out a survey that we sent out just with a bunch of questions, and one of the questions we asked was, well, as you were growing up, what ideas of manhood were sort of either directly or indirectly kind of taught to you, whether it was in your home or your school or your church or just the neighborhood you're around? And, and over eight to five of you, like, like I think of those surveys, 68% cited strong or tough as sort of ideas of that. That's what it means to be a man. And uh, as we think about our own conception of manhood, and, and if you're not a man, just stay with me, this is relevant to all of us, okay? 50% probably of you are, but this is relevant to everyone, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Um, those ideas, right, of what it means to me a man were probably in many ways shaped 
um, by the people we saw, not just the ideas we heard, but the men that we grew up with and the, and the observations we made. And many of those things may have been really positive for you. Maybe you had like a really, um, like a positive role model, maybe in a teacher or a dad or a grandparent, and, and that shaped you. And, and like if I think about, I had, had a, my dad's here today, I had an amazing experience growing up, love my dad. And if I were to conclude, okay, what does it mean to be a man? I don't remember him ever saying, men are always like this or never do that. But if I were to say, what's that picture of manhood? Well, for me, it would be someone who's smart, someone who's very steady, emotionally steady, like doesn't raise his voice, someone who's um, capable, um, intelligent, fit, um, like those were, those were things that I would just draw as I, especially as you respect, if you respect the, the men that you grew up with, you would have said, oh, that's what it looks like to be a man. But maybe some of us didn't have good pictures and we're trying to, and as I say to people, knowing what you don't want isn't a blueprint for anything, right? I mean, it can be helpful to know what you don't want, but that isn't a blueprint for what it should look like. Those, the game we played earlier uh, about, you know, the quotes that we picked of sort of famous men, <laughs> even call Homer Simpson famous, like that they weren't just quotes that we picked. In a sense, there are in our culture caricatures of manhood that are painted for us. In other words, pictures of what men are meant to be. In other words, you know what a caricature is? If you ever go to like Wonderland or a fair or something like that, and they ask them to draw a picture of you, they'll pick one characteristic of you, your nose or your chin or whatever, your eyebrows, and they accentuate them. Like they're, it's an over-exaggeration of one aspect in order for humor. But, but a caricature, in a sense, is an over-exaggeration of a picture. And we actually have many caricatures in our culture of what men are supposed to be. And, and in that sense, we say, well, men are predictably fill in the blank. And so if we use those guys that we played in the game this morning, we say men are predictably immature or goofy. Men are predictably um, interested in wealth or career. Men are predictably interested only in sex. Men are predictably interested in success. Men are predictably sort of angry or strong or tough. Or perhaps men are predictably passive and disengaged. These are, in a sense, the caricatures or the stereotypes of men. Oh, and so we have saying, oh, men, right? It's this idea, it's this stereotype, it's this idea of what a man is. It's a picture, in a sense, an over-exaggeration. But let me read some statistics for you. 85% of all CEOs in America are male. And actually, if you take that for the Fortune 500 companies, it's 95%. 85% of law firm partners, not lawyers, but the ones who have a financial stake in the firm, 85% are men. 97% of creative directors in advertising are male. And 85% of legal offenses or crimes, according to StatsCan 2013, committed by men. Let me just stop there for a moment. That's a problem on many levels for many reasons. And it's not just because it's an issue of inequality, though it is. What this means is that the caricatures aren't stereotypes. It means we're living out of them. If 97%, and that's a, that's a four or five year old statistic, so maybe that's changed somewhat, of creative directors, the ones who are shaping the image of what is a man and what is a woman and how they interact are men. That's an inordinate amount of influence or control over what people see in advertising, in television. If 85% of those who are partners in law firms 
or CEOs in influential companies, 95% in the Fortune 500 companies, are men. That means power and wealth belonging to one gender only, to men. And it's 85% of all offenses, and they say it's 80% of violent crime committed by men. It seems we're living out the stereotype of wealth, of power, of sex, of aggression, toughness. And let's just say that our inability to do anything about it is probably living out of the stereotype of being passive. So this is something that needs to change because the caricatures and the pictures that we have of manhood are not sufficient to create the world we want to live in. It isn't just about equality, right? And as you are sitting here as a woman, chances are you have an influential role in the life of a man or a boy or a baby boy, whether as a teacher or as a parent or a grandparent or a spouse. It is all of our responsibility to say we cannot live out of the caricatures and the stereotypes anymore. In many ways, the, the Me Too pandemic, which is what it is, and let's not get tired of it, friends. I've heard people say, oh, it's another Me Too. You know, like if one of the other gymnasts came out and testified against Larry Nassar, would we say, oh, another one? We wouldn't say that. Let's not get tired of it. It's a pandemic. It is years and years and years and years of things catching up with us, and now it's bursting out into the open. We cannot live out of these stereotypes anymore. And so the question is, what is the picture of manhood? And do the scriptures actually give us something else to live out of? The amazing news for us is that God didn't just create humans. He became one. I, that never gets old to me. It should never get old to us. It is actually unique in all of the worldviews or religions that God actually became a human. And he came as a man. Now you might say, why did, why did Jesus come as a man? Like, why did God appear as a man? Like, if he was going to come to earth as a human, why a man? Uh, my uh, friend, who is a, a well-known pastor in the city, Bruxy Cave, he said it this way. He said, I used to ask my dad all these questions when I was growing up. And he said, he said, I don't know. I guess he could have come as a woman. But Jesus coming as a man into the world, into culture at that time, not only was showing men how to be men, but he was actually redefining what it meant to be a woman. And in that time, only a man could have done that. And he did. And Dave's actually going to talk about that week, how as women our lives are redefined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But he did come as a human being. And so what we are able to see is actually a picture of true humanity. And I want to take a moment, just, just the passage that Serena read for us this morning, there are in just this short collection of verses, I don't think Jesus was actually trying to set out to redefine manhood in this passage, nor I don't really think the gospel writers were actually writing it for that purpose. But as I looked at it, I thought, in, in just short few verses, three different ways where Jesus challenges the stereotypes and caricatures of manhood and actually gives us a different picture of what men are meant to be like. The beginning of this passage is sort of set up near the end of one of the biographies of Jesus, the biography of Luke. And Jesus has been teaching and healing and doing all of these amazing things as a human that they were starting to say, who is this man? Like, who is this person? He's not fitting any of the categories that we know of. And they were starting to um, attribute terms and titles to him that were loaded. 
the word Messiah, um, Lord, um, were, were terms of leadership or kingship. They, some called him the son of David. The son of David, David was like Israel's greatest king. And so the son of David was this kind of this prophetic title of like a new king is going to come one day in the line of David. They had said they were waiting and, and the country was at its best under David's rule. And so son of David was this kind of royal, um, you know, hinted at title. And, and it seemed like up to this point in the narrative, every time some of that came up about Jesus' identity and son of God and Messiah, he would tell people to be quiet. He seemed to be not interested in their political agendas at all because they wanted a new leader. They wanted a liberator. They wanted someone who was going to throw the Romans off their backs. It had been 400 years. They had been ruled by Babylon and then Persia and then uh, under Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. And so they were finished with They wanted someone who was going to liberate them politically, religiously, economically, socially. But Jesus didn't seem to want to have anything to do with it until this moment. So he's making the journey the, towards Jerusalem. And it's about a 100-mile journey from where he lived. And most of his ministry had been outside Jerusalem and with a people who really were not considered to be sort of the Jewish elite. But as he's moving, he's making this journey towards Jerusalem, his followers and all the people that he had ministered to, people he had healed and people he had saved, people he had raised from the dead and their families or whatever, they were all starting to gather around him because they knew he was heading to Jerusalem. So they thought, okay, something's good. Finally, he's going to do something because Jerusalem was kind of the, the cultural and religious center. And so he's going and he's amassing this following. And think about this. It's a hundred mile journey, okay? And he does it on foot. But the last two miles, he does something else. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the, called the Mount of Olives. Now picture this. Bethpage and Bethany, hill, hill the Mount of Olives. They would be kind of coming up over this hill. And down the hill, the last two miles was to the city of Jerusalem. So from the top of the hill, you could see the whole city. He sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And of course they go, and of course someone asked them, why are you untying it? People were like, what is this about? You know, is this a, they were, you know, wanted to, the scribe was getting paid by the letter. He wanted to add a few extra words. Why did he say this? They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus pulls this kind of stunt two miles out. He's walked 100 miles. He can't walk the last two like, what's going on? What's with the cult? And what's with the, the Lord needs it? If someone asks you, the Lord needs it, sure. It was code. He had set it up ahead of time. This looks like a power play by Jesus. So right when they're coming to the hill that would go down in Jerusalem, where they could see the city and where people in the city could see them, he decides to ride a colt. He decides to ride into the city. He actually arranges it ahead of time. And then people start throwing their cloaks on the road and shouting out all of these titles of king and Messiah. And this time, he doesn't stop them. This time, he seems to say, all right. In fact, the Pharisees say, tell them to be quiet. And he says, you know what? Even the stones will say it if they stop saying it. It's like, whoa, now you're into this? This whole crowd. The other thing that, that we wouldn't know, but that if we were a Jewish person living in that time would remember is about 175 years before, 
when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian Greek ruler, had seized the temple and put an idol of Zeus in it and sacrificed a pig on the altar, which would have been blasphemy for Jewish people, um, there was a family called the Maccabean family. And one of the sons, Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, against the Syrian Greek rule, and he rode into Jerusalem on a horse with an army, and they took back the city. And it was one of the most, uh, it's, it's what is celebrated at Hanukkah, when, when the temple got restored to the Jewish people. It's one of the most, the proudest moments of the Jewish people. And so here's Jesus riding into the city again. The similarity would not have been lost on the devout Jew. Here it comes. Fight, 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 right? I don't know, remember, remember in high school when there was a fight, right? Like, was it always the guys who were like, you'd run to the fight, not to help, just to yell fight. I remember the, the, the first time I took Jen to a hockey game, we had, okay, this is rinkside seats in the Bell Center, Leafs versus Canadians. So we're just pounding on the glass. It's incredible. All of a sudden, there's a fight at the other end. So I'm standing up, and I'm trying to see because we're, you know, I didn't have a great view just because we were with people around. All of a sudden, I feel this, like, yank on my shirt. Like, what's going on? I look down, Jen sitting down. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm watching the fight. That is barbaric. Can we talk about this later? Like, the fight's going on. Like, what? You know, <clears throat> right? I don't know what that is. But anyways, uh, there are stereotypes again. But, right, like, this, this for them, they would have felt like, oh, there's going to be a fight, and this is going to be, like, finally, right? He's riding in to take back the city from the Romans. That's what they wanted, a military leader. And so it looks like a power play, and yet the whole thing is laced with something else. First of all, he's riding a donkey, not a war horse. The donkey was a beast of burden. They were cheap enough that poor people could buy them. And so they were the poor man's horse, essentially. Not only that, he didn't have an army with him. In fact, he had a kind of a ragtag group of people who were considered not purebred Jews who were from all of these other towns. And so nobody in Jerusalem would have looked at this group of people and said, oh yeah, here comes the king. In fact, if you're trying to make yourself important, you surround yourself with important people, right? You name drop or whatever. Jesus seemed to surround himself with people that would have made him look a little bit less than a king. There's actually throughout this, whole, and it actually typifies Jesus' view of power, that instead of power, he chose humility. It's a caricature-busting view of Jesus, that instead of power, when he could have seized it for himself, he chose humility to the point that, actually, if you look at it, in this, at this, up to this point in history, humility was not considered a virtue. In the Roman world, to, be, to, to um, promote yourself was considered a virtue. Humility was not a virtue. You trace the origins of the virtue of humility, they trace right back to the timeline of history to Jesus Christ who redefines what people do with power. This riding in on a donkey, humble, the humble king, dignifying, actually using his power to dignify people. Instead of the, the lowly people around him bringing down his name, he chose to use whatever power he had to lift up the lowly people who were willing enough to travel with him. It's a total reversal of how we see power. Jesus busting the stereotypes. But he goes on, and look at what happens next. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, remember he's coming down, so he can now see the whole city, he wept over it, 
and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Imagine it's kind of the scene, right? Because it just happens. It's all part of one passage. Jesus is coming in as the king, and he stops and he looks at the city. He says, even if you, and he's talking about the city, the people, if you had only known what would bring you peace. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself because he knows he's riding into his death. He actually told the disciples that. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected and suffer and die. Now, what does a man do when he faces rejection? Three things. Anger, right? Stoic, like a stone face. Or like they say on Die Hard when they're showing it on TV, forget you, right? <clears throat> Get that? You've never seen Die Hard on TV. Come on, guys. You know you can't pass it. Rocky or Die Hard are on TV. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen it. Right? Forget you. You're going to reject me, I'm going to reject you. You're going to show aggression to me, I'm going to show aggression to you. That's what a man does. And look what Jesus does. He weeps. But it says he wept over the city. What does it mean? He was over top of the city and his tears were falling. What does it mean that he wept over the city? He was heartbroken for them. Which is what? Compassion, not anger. How did Jesus deal with rejection? Compassion, not anger. Why do you weep over a city? Why is that your response to rejection? It's only your response to rejection if even in that moment you care more about them than you. Right? What does he say? If you had only known what would bring you peace, but you didn't want it. Instead of him shaking his fist at them and saying, then screw you. He weeps over the city. In the face of rejection, Jesus in that moment was still not thinking about his title, his authority. He had just been declared as king, and he says, I know you're going to reject me as king. And in that moment, what was most important to him was not his honor, but their situation. And he said, you know what, because of this, the city's not going to be destroyed. It wasn't punishment for rejecting Jesus. He just said, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's so interesting, right? He says, if you, had, if you had accepted me, things could have been different for you. He said, you didn't want it. And in the end, they, they rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans destroyed them. Because he was trying to teach them a different way to live. But they didn't want it. Some of you grew up in honor-shame cultures, where if someone dishonors you, you have to defend your honor. It's just, that's, that's not like a, just a male reaction. That's how you protect the honor of the family, of the family name of yourself. You are not any kind of a man if you don't defend the honor of your family or your family name. But even if you didn't grow up in an honor-shame culture, right? When we deal with rejection, isn't it? Either we're stoic, say, fine, I, you know what? I didn't care about them anyways, or they're an idiot. Or you show anger. But Jesus, in the moment of rejection, does none of those things is not even interested in his own honor at that point. He cares more about them and what was going to happen to them than him and what was going to happen to him, which is why he wept over the city. What does it look like to show compassion instead of anger? If you are fundamentally more interested in the other person 
than what is happening to you. Our response is compassion. And then he continues on. And they do what he, they, hope, he, they hoped he would do, would go to the temple. Because he's going to go to the temple, which is the center of all this stuff, and he's going to preach, he's going to teach, he's maybe going to do some more miracles, and people are going to love him, and finally the Jewish leaders are going to recognize this is the Messiah, we've accepted him. And yet he does something totally unexpected, totally unpredictable. If you want to talk about predictability of manhood, Jesus does something totally unpredictable. And in this passage, it goes so quick. He says, when Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out those who were selling. And just stop there for a moment. If we actually piece the biographies of Jesus together, because I think all four of them, or three of them at least, include this scene. Um, John says he makes a whip out of a rope. This is like some of you grew up with like the picture, you know, like the Catholic picture of Jesus that you grew up with predominantly was the one with the heart you know, and the thing, if you're a Protestant, you grew up, there was no heart, but there was a lamb on Jesus' shoulder. In both cases, he was white with blue eyes, which is just, you know, anyways. Uh, and in the movie, still has a British accent, which I get because anybody with a British, they just sound like the GPS. I always use British because it just sounds, you must know what you're talking about. Um, but this is not the picture of Jesus we know. This is like a UFC, like, press conference or something. It says he gets a whip. And he chased people out, which meant they were afraid he was going to hit them. And as he's going, he's turning over the tables of money changers, those who were selling. What does the selling happen? Well, this was the largest part of the temple. And it was the area where non-Jews could come to pray. So they, you weren't allowed, if you weren't a Jew, to go any further. And so this was the largest area. But if, if they recognized, hey, for those who maybe didn't grow up with God, but actually want to seek God, which is all of us, we need a place for them to pray. They should be able to pray and see God. But what was happening at the temple was, especially at this time of year, where people would come, to, they had to sacrifice animals. That was part of their worship. Well, you're not going to carry, you know, Bambi all the way from wherever you live. And so you're, a deer wasn't part of the sacrificial system, I'm just saying. Okay, you're not going to carry that, so you have to buy an animal there. Well, but you were probably from a different town that used a different currency. So there were money changers. So you're talking like 40 different currencies maybe here like money everywhere and animals everywhere, and Jesus wrecks the place, turns it all over. Totally different than gentle Jesus, the children sitting on his knee, never turning anyone away, healing, restoring, approachable. Now he's, people are running from him because they're afraid he's going to hit them, and he's wrecking the place. What is happening? Probably two things are going on at the same time. One is, and one of the other accounts, Jesus says, my place is to be called a house of prayer for the Gentiles or for the non-Jews. In other words, he was upset that the ones who hadn't grown up with God but were trying to find God couldn't because it sounded like Costco on a Saturday in their prayer room. And so he's mad. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. And you've turned it into a madhouse. But more than that, he was basically bringing their entire religion to a grinding halt in five minutes. Because if you couldn't sacrifice, you couldn't get forgiven. And I wonder if Jesus was looking at this saying, all of this is over. It's bogus. All of this religion has been used to oppress and tax and rob people. And he's angry that this is what it has become. At that moment, we don't see compassion. We see passion, not passivity. 
not disengagement, passion. Guys, if you're always angry, there's a problem. If you're never angry, there's a problem. Right? Like we can be passionate about our sports teams and our jobs and our home renovation. But if someone asks us, what's the thing in your heart that wrecks you? That you say, this shouldn't be. What injustice keeps you up at night? You know, there's enough in the news now about human trafficking, and if you've been a part of our church getting involved in that, like that doesn't make you crazy. Something's not right in you. I'm not talking about everybody has to be passionate about everything, but if you're not passionate about anything other than your career, other than sports, other than what next is happening in your home, something is shut off in us that needs to be turned on. Passivity, disengagement, is not a mode of manhood we were meant to have. And I say, okay, well, is that like we're going to go crack heads? Like, is that, is that what this is about? What was the passion of Jesus? He was willing to suffer for something that was right. Right? So we actually call the suffering of Jesus his passion. That's the question for us when it comes to, it's not passivity or disengagement, but is there something that I am willing to suffer and even die for? Not that it gets me angry, but that makes me willing to make myself uncomfortable, to risk the things that are precious to me for something that is more important than me. That's passion. This is, this is Jesus busting stereotypes in about 15 verses. And like I said, I don't think he was doing this to teach men something particularly. I don't think the gospel writers were writing it for that. But as I read it, it told me something. You might say, well, okay, so what is our picture of manhood we're supposed to have? And as I was writing it, I thought, okay, like, yeah, we need to give a biblical picture of manhood. And I thought, I don't think there is one. Like, as in, it'll end up being another caricature. And in many ways, some of the pictures of manhood that we've been living out of have been created by the church. We have Jesus. And you know what Jesus' disciples called him? Most often, rabbi, teacher. And here's what I concluded. That being a man is not about being predictable. It's about being teachable. It's about being teachable. Because every moment requires something different. And I need to commit my life and myself to being taught by the true healer. If I'm predictably anything, I need to be taught something different. See, to be a man is actually to walk closely enough with Jesus that he is continually teaching you how to live. Girls, if you're looking for who you're going to marry someday, you're not looking for Mr. Perfect. You're looking for Mr. Teachable. And I don't mean teachable by you, okay, because that's a bad idea. <clears throat> you will, he, we will learn, we do learn from our wives as husbands. But you are looking for, does this man know how to be taught by Jesus? Or is he, hey, I am what I am. I am what I am is not good enough, guys. It's not about perfection. It's not about that I know what to do in every situation. But am I a little different than I used to be? Or am I so predictable that people could kind of draw a sketch about how I'm going to react? Am I teachable? Am I close enough? to be taught by him.
And so here's two questions for you. Where do I lean and how can I learn? Where do I lean as a man? Like, do I lean to a kind of stereotype or a caricature? Do I kind of lean one way? Am I typically that stoic guy? Never see a teardrop from my eye. Do I lean to kind of being angry and sort of fly off the handle? Do I lean to being predictably interested in my work or wealth accumulation? Am I predictably disengaged? Where do I lean? And I would ask you to ask someone this question about you. Ooh, dangerous conversations, right? Pick your moments, okay? Be smart about it. Ask someone close to you. If you're married, ask your spouse, hey, where do I lean? Am I predictably anything? If you have kids who are old enough to talk, ask them. Close friends, roommates, people who know you well and who will tell you the truth. Hey, where do I lean? Ask that question. The answer is important. And then how do I learn? How can I learn more from Jesus? If my goal as being a man is about being teachable, not predictable, then I need to prioritize learning opportunities. We have one next weekend. It's called the Men's Retreat. Okay, we're actually going away with a bunch of guys. And part of that, we offer that, is, is an investment in your manhood. An investment in actually saying, okay, how do I learn more from who Jesus is? How do I learn from the people around me? We have a, a men's study this summer. During the summer, the women and men sort of break up and do typically do home groups during the year together. But in the summer in July, the women are doing a study, the men are doing a study. And so that may be a time, it's like a six weeks in the evening, just to like actually study scripture. So I need to learn, how do I be taught more? Or you may just want to approach somebody in the church that you respect who, who seems to walk closely with Jesus. They're not perfect. You say, hey, can I learn from you on how you're learning about who Jesus is? I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful conversations we could have. It isn't, it isn't about imitating somebody else other than Christ. But we follow as we follow Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team up. It's going to lead us in response. <clears throat> Psychologist Philip Zimbardo he was the one who was involved in that famous Stanford prison experiment many, many years ago. But he wrote a book recently with another psychologist called The Demise of Guys. And it wasn't like a man-bashing book, but he basically just said this. He said, we have a generation of men who are addicted to porn and addicted to video games, which means they're learning fake love and fake war. Love without intimacy, adrenaline without danger. I believe that this generation of men, our generation, and every generation of men that says, hey, we actually want to be a part of seeing Jesus change this world. The truth is, if the pornography industry is ever going to crumple to the ground, it's going to have to be a man who does it. Because it's men who are largely perpetuating it. If human trafficking in our city is ever going to come to a grinding halt, it's going to have to be men who are a part of it. Not that women don't play an important role, but women by themselves cannot do it. Men must be a part of this change. I believe that as we begin to become more passionate men, not predictable, not stereotyped, not saying a man is always this or always that, who you are 
is who God has made you to be. But as you become more passionate about the thing that he has called you to be, if this is how much influence we have, even though it's not right, it does mean we can make a big difference. Doesn't it? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you were not predictable. And we've tried to draw pictures of you, and they all fall a bit short. We thank you that you didn't give us a set of rules to follow, but a person to follow. You didn't give us seven steps to fill in the blank. You said, stay close to me. Walk with me. You've forgiven our sins, so we don't need to be ashamed to walk closely with you. You are not ashamed to call us friends, brothers. So we don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of what we've done or haven't done. Even today, you are inviting us. Follow. Follow. So I just pray that we would be a community of men that would stay so close to you. That we'd be close to one another as we follow you. That we would be part of writing a new chapter of the next generation and the one after that. Lord, just get rid of our pride so we can truly be teachable. Thank you that we're all in the same boat. We're not who we once were, but we're not yet where we want to be. So teach us, Lord, in your name.